Hi, this is Amanda. And this is Lindsay. We're True Creeps. Where the stories are true. And the creeps are real. We'll cover stories from grotesque gore. To the possibly plausible paranormal. To horrifying history. To tense and terrible true crime. And everything else that goes bump in the night. We want you to join us while we creep. We cover mature topics. Listener discretion is advised. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to a Valo update, which we haven't done in a while, but there was a lot of things that happened since we've done one. Yes, there is so much to discuss, just so very much. We tried to pick out what we thought were some of the highlights from the past two months-ish. Last time we updated on Valo was the beginning of September in our True Crime Digest, and we didn't include it in our last one because we knew we were going to have this. Yeah, yeah. So there's a lot. There's some creepy updates. I guess it's hilariously creepy is the best way to say it, right? You say hilarious. I say deeply unsettling. Do you want to be nauseated? Do you want to have the thought of hugs ruined for you? Yeah. We're going to do it. We're absolutely going to do that to you. So, Lindsay, uh, what did Chad write? So, in July of 2019, Chad sent Laurie a series of text messages that chronicled their quote-unquote love stories. And I'm guessing this was probably to her hidden phone, right? Remember how she had multiple phones? Oh, my God. Because she didn't want anyone to see? No one should see. That this is what she was like, yeah, about. So, Chandler, Arizona's police department, pieced the messages together. And so, when you read them, they're, they're like a story now, but they originally weren't that way from what I understand. And so East Idaho News included the full story on their website. We will post a link. I am sorry, but it's also a very interesting and illuminating viewpoint. And we'll get to that for a few reasons. We're going to talk a little bit about what they said, but it is pretty illustrative, if you could say that. And it's very clear that Chad lusted after Laurie from the moment he saw her and that he was, quote unquote, in love with her since the first day they met. So he also talks about how they were basically dry humping one another in private. One text from Chad said, tonight I figured out who I feel like. I'm a grown up version of Harry Potter who has to live with the Dudleys in his little space under the stairs. Every few weeks, I get to escape and have amazing adventures with my goddess lover. But then I have to return to my place under the stairs, feeling trapped. But I sense permanent freedom is coming. And I can't express to you just like the seething rage I have, right, for that. Because, well, first off, the way his children spoke about him was that he was crazy in love with their mom and really devoted and like such a family man and like that he loved the life he was in. Right. And that is very clear that it was not the case, that he felt trapped by Tammy. And there's your motivation, right? Like, he's very clearly saying, I feel trapped. Yeah, yeah. And it's sad because she, I mean, if you think about it, she lived with more of her family, right? Mm -hmm. And then they relocated to Rexburg. And so she gave up a lot, right? I mean, at least that's what I suspect is she gave up some things. Yeah. To make her husband happy because he said, we need to move to Idaho. And from everything I've ever seen and from when I went to Rexburg and talked to people, she was a devoted wife and a wonderful person. Yeah. And like sometimes relationships do not work out and that is okay. But you divorce them. You don't kill them or you suck at the fuck up. Like those are your options. Yeah. Suck at the fuck up or you leave. 
But so in August of 2019, Laurie said to Chad via text, you should give all of your love and your attention to your wife and family. And then in another text, she said, I'm just a distraction. Go have fun with your family. I really do want you to. I just can't be in the way anymore. If things change, we can talk. But we have nothing until things change anyway. The first time when I didn't hate Laurie was that text message. She knew what she was doing was wrong. Yeah. Yeah. She recognized it. Clearly, this looks like guilt to me, right? Like guilt over what is going on, but not enough guilt. So I see it both ways, though, because she is very manipulative. So like she is saying, until things change, how could we get things to change? You're right. I retract everything I said. She's a viper. Yeah. So on October 5th, same year, 2019, Chad says to Laurie, hello, sweet angel. Big news about Tammy. Please let me know if you're awake and can talk. I love you. And the news that he was giving her was that Tammy was dark. Yeah. So he read that and he was like, "Okay, so how do we start things changing? Oh, my gosh. My wife magically went dark. She's no longer here. She's a zombie. Yeah. Gross. It's absolutely gross. And speaking of gross, let's get in a little more to this story. So in his story, he refers to himself as James and to Laurie as Elena. And we're going to give you some quotes. And this is what I meant by hilariously creepy, by the way. And this is what I meant by deeply unsettling. So we're sharing just a few quotes. There's many. There's so many. There's so many. But these were the, the three that really like made me uncomfortable the most. So the first is, this was manifested in the world to James and Elena through the scientific phenomenon known as loin fire. <laughs> so, Lindsay, since you're a scientist, what is the scientific phenomenon? Can you describe it more? Sweet God, I am not a loin fire scientist. <laughs> and thank goodness, because loin fire... Loin fire. You're welcome. Okay. So also, I did promise you that you would hate the idea of hugs and that we were going to ruin hugs for you. So they exchanged numbers and then gave each other a hug goodbye. It was the most wonderful, electric, delicious hug he had ever felt. Then he watched her walk. I'm so sorry. What? A delicious hug? Oh, like when you say it and then if you think of Chad's stupid face. Stupid fucking face. I don't like it. I also don't like it. So there's another one. And it says his desire for her was indescribable. Thankfully, she had worn 16 layers of clothing to survive the 80 degree weather. So he was not fully aware that she truly had the body of a goddess. Her dimensions were exactly what he had always fantasized about. But that revelation would have to wait a month. I have many questions. That's the most Arizona erotica I've ever read. Just like <laughs> a brisk 80 degree day. Yeah, it was probably snowing. 16 layers. 16 layers. Like what? I can't comprehend what she was wearing. What? Did this happen? Is he just insane? Was he talking about like each individual piece of clothing? Because let's go like sock, sock presumably panties and a bra, pants, a shirt, shoes on each foot, maybe a sweater on top. We're only at nine. We're only at nine. No, at 80 degrees. It had to have been every bobby pin in her hair or something. Yeah, but like maybe she had a whole bunch of bangles on. Is he counting jewelry in the layers? That wouldn't hide her shape. I don't know. 16 layers of clothing to survive the 80 degree weather. I have no idea 
I, I don't know what was happening. I don't get it. And also, we don't need to, like, read you it. But let me just tell you that one of Chad's favorite things in the world, apparently, was watching Laurie in a pair of black leggings. Yeah. No, thank you. And so we talked about his kids before and how, again, they thought they were fine. But, like, in that last interview, they said that they thought he was being played. But clearly, he was infatuated with her from the beginning. Right? Right. Yeah, absolutely. Wasn't there a debate on like when their relationship started and that they were just friends? So weird. I do not dry hunt my friends. That's good. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. Good etiquette. It feels appropriate. I don't give anyone delicious hugs. (laughs) No one's getting a delicious hug from me. All right. So let's rein it in a bit and talk about some more emails that came through. So there was some emails to Tammy from Charles. And Chandler Police Department found these through Charles's cell phone records that he had emailed Chad and Tammy both. And it started with that fake email Lori had sent to Chad when she was pretending to be Charles asking for help with his book that was actually a thing. On June 29th at 9.16 a.m., Charles sent Tammy an email to her work email. He introduced himself and said that he had, quote, some vital and disturbing information regarding your husband and my wife, Lori, and that he would wait to send the evidence since it was her work email. He asked her to call or email from an address that he could send the info to. And then he apologized for being the one to have to tell her about the information. Okay, so with this email, though, it sounds kind of scammy the way that he wrote it. And I don't think that that was his intention. I know he was just probably really stressed out and he was like, look what's happening. I need to alert her. But the way that he says, I have information regarding your husband and my wife, Lori. If I got an email saying, I have information about your husband. Say his name. Okay. Like if you do, what's his name? Yeah. You know, like give me personal information so I know that it's real. Otherwise, it's just what the 900th email trying to sell me Norton antivirus. Why? Why? Why am I getting so many of these emails? I don't know. My subscription has not expired. I'm sorry. I'm very heated about it. I think we have like 17 in our true creeps email right now. And I delete them regularly. (laughs) So there's a lot of people online saying she knew then. Like she knew all this stuff was happening. Charles informed her. But I still am on the side of maybe she didn't. Because if I would have read that, I would have been like, this is super weird. I don't know a Lori. And you're not saying my husband's name. So I don't know. They don't say that she ever responded. But I for sure would think it was a fake email. I also, I wonder, we've heard so much about how much of a devoted wife she was and how just like she was an amazing mom and all the things and like just a good human. I wonder what she would have done if she did get that email. If she did find out, what would she have done? I feel like she would have just had a conversation with her husband like a normal human being and be like, please elaborate on what is happening because she seemed like she was a normal person, right? I don't know. As I'm saying it, I'm like, I don't know if I would be able to have a calm conversation. Like, I think my thing is not necessarily, obviously, you talk to your spouse, but like, first thing you do, the first thing I would do would not be talking to Ben. I would be like, I need to like sort this out because I'm going to be like a not good version of myself. Yeah. But also it's a random person you have no idea accusing someone you love, right, of something bad. That's true. You're like, I don't know you. Are you just some crazy person? Are you Norton antivirus? What are you? Are you Norton antivirus? So, (laughs) so like, I don't know. I don't know how I would react to a random email to my work email that didn't give me any identifying information. Can I tell you the name of one of the people who have sent us a subscription for Norton antivirus? Oh, yes, please. Xavier Hugs. How fitting. (laughs) How fitting. 
told you we have a hundred of them. I don't know where they're coming from or why, but I have them on all of my email addresses. Also on June 29th at 9.32 a.m., Charles sent an email to Chad letting him know that he knew about the fake email that Lori had sent to him about the book that he wasn't actually writing. He also mentioned that Lori needed to explain what was going on or he would expose them. Lastly, he mentioned that he knew about the dance videos Lori sent to him and that it wasn't appropriate. Remember her dance room? Dance videos. She made some creepy dance videos for Chad. I don't know why he didn't write about that in his weird erotica. I don't think they got that far. Maybe. So on June 30th of 2019, Charles sent Lori some messages and it started with, be sure to look over your shoulders today. This might be the day. It's coming. That much, I promise you. Then shortly after, he wrote, and your boyfriend too. There's no indication that Lori actually responded to these. And then a little while after that, he wrote, you will reap the destruction you have sown. I'll be there for JJ. Don't worry about that. Have a wonderful day being a hypocrite in church. And then again, no indication she responded. So those messages do seem a little threatening, though. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah, I mean, saying like, look over your shoulder, that verbiage is just generally threatening. No one's like, look over your shoulder because we're going to have a conversation that's reasonable and kind, right? That's not how that's phrased. Yeah, he had gone through a lot. I get it. I'd be angry. I would probably say things in an angry way, too. Yeah. But also, remember how she was like, he wants to kill me for my insurance money. It kind of helped her story along. It really did. So, very weird. Later on, he sent another fairly long message. I'm not going to read the whole thing. It is long. But it says, you accuse me of infidelity, but it's you who is having an affair. It just keeps killing me. Maybe that's your goal. How can you live with destroying our life, Mel and Brandon's, probably Mel and Brendan too. Now add Chad Daybell's family and you've got a home run. And he's not wrong. When he's saying Mel and Brandon, that's Melanie Pulowski now and her ex-husband, which is Melanie with an I, her niece. And then Mel and Brendan is Melanie Gibb and her ex-husband, who was Brendan Gibb. So if you think about it, though, like all of these relationships and then if you count Charles, all of these had Lori doing something to the relationship in some way. Well, she seemed like a very manipulative and conniving person. Yeah. And just from every instance and every story and every relationship that I've seen with Lori, the one constant to me always seems like she tries to cultivate a relationship where she is that person's most important person in their life. Right? Yeah. Like, think about, I mean, like, obviously with kids, that makes sense. But also Alex, we're going to talk about that later. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Yeah. But also, right, like, think Zulema. They got really close, didn't they, as well? Yeah. Chad, after just meeting him over and over and over, she tries to like take that spot in people's lives. Yeah, she does. And this is where it just made me kind of sad again for Charles. I know he probably said things he shouldn't have. And I'm sure he was angry that day he came to pick up JJ. Like, who wouldn't be? I don't think it transpired the way that they made it out to be. But he says, you have destroyed me. I've never been lower in my life. It's you that has done it. Please tell me why, please. I will slow or minimize what's about to happen. It's you who caused it. We have a son to raise, but that's all we have in common. I will work with you in his best interest and we'll be there Monday evening. You owe me an apology for all the false accusations. That feels so fair. And so like, even if he started off as unkind and honestly creepy, a little creepy, yeah, he does get to a point where he's like, 
we have a son to raise, but that's all we have in common. Right. And I think that's fair. And it's good that he's like, we're still going to be his parents. Yeah, we. We are still the parents. We still have to figure this out. Yeah. He was being reasonable. Yeah. And so, I mean, I think that's why I have a hard time believing some of the stuff about him. But also, we've heard accounts that he didn't have the same type of feelings for Tylee that he did for JJ. Yeah. And notice he says it's just a son. Right. Well, I don't. he never legally adopted Tylee, from what I understand. Still, though. And it's sad, but the more I think about it and the more like I read, I think that she was very close to her mom. And I've seen some of her Instagram posts a while back. I think I shared them on my Instagram. But she was a mama's girl, right? Like she loved her mom. She idolized her mom in a way. So if her mom is saying negative things about Charles, why would she choose Charles? over her mom. So I'm sure that came into it too because she was a bit older, right? Yeah, I mean, even before that. Yeah, it is. Like, she's like, he used to yell at me. Like, he was mean. He didn't like me. Stuff like that. There had to be a point when her and Charles were good, right? Sim so because Colby says very high things about Charles. Yeah. And he was protective over his siblings. Well, even Kay and Larry, don't they talk about how they were like a wonderful couple at first? Yeah, that's true. I don't think JJ would have been with them if they seemed like they were a train wreck. Yeah, yeah. So we're going to switch gears a little bit and we're going to talk about a conversation that Justin Lum posted between Chad and Laura. And it had to do with Charles' change of beneficiary for his insurance. And so the way that Chad talks about him is a little frustrating because they both just act very cavalier and very removed when they're discussing Charles's death. So Laurie says, I just got the letter from the insurance company saying that I'm not the beneficiary. It's a spear through my heart. Who do you think he changed it to? Brandon or probably Kay? He left nothing for JJ. Chad said, wow, that's terrible. There's no way to find out. Laurie says, I might be able to see when I get his computer on Sunday. I could check the emails sent to the insurance company. It will show the change of beneficiary. He must have done it recently. And Chad responds, it seems you would have had to agree to the change. Maybe your name was forged. You should have a good paper trail to prove it. Just as a note, you do not need the beneficiary's consent because it's your policy. Yeah, you could change it as many times as you want. Yeah. Yeah. To anyone you decide. So Chad goes on to say, I love you. This is terrible. And I'm going to say this next word, but I don't know if I'm saying it right. But it's probably another step in bringing down the Gadiantens, especially Brandon. Lori says, nope, he can change it anytime he wants. He's the agent and anyone can change their beneficiary anytime with their own signature. I'm thinking it must be Kay. Chad says, hmm, it will be interesting if he got it changed after he had two bullets in his chest. Blink, blink. Right? Like the sheer not caring at all that a human died. Yeah, but also like if she was any way like not a fucking monster, she would have been frustrated with that phrasing. Right? Well, he's just like, well, when would he have changed it? He wouldn't have changed it. So someone must have done it after he died. Yeah. He knew it was coming because you guys were bad at masking what you were doing. Exactly. So Laurie says, I don't think he could have. You can't change it after death. They would review that. Chad says, yes, I'm thinking Kay as well. She is probably freaking out that you got those computers. I'm going to shower you and give you a blessing. I'm eager to get home so we can talk. It will be okay, my love. You are wonderful. And so Gadiantons are, per the Book of Mormon, a secret criminal organization in ancient America. And we've heard the word Nephite before, right? Yeah. So they were founded by a, quote, wicked Nephite named Gadianton. So per churchofjesuschrist.org, in the Book of Mormon, a band of robbers found by a wicked Nephite named Gadianton. Their organization was based on secrecy and satanic oaths. 
So that's what that word means. I saw that and was like, that sounds something. So speaking of Chad being cavalier about Charles's death, it's been released that Chad called a funeral home. And so he called a funeral home in Arizona to get a quote for cremation. And here are some like just two quotes that hit me a little bit. So he said to them initially, just a simple no nothing other than a cremation and then sending him to his family for a service in Louisiana. So is there a way to know a ballpark price on that? So they asked him his name and like some details and he said it was an uncle, but like this absolute criminal mastermind. They're like, what is your name? And he says, Chad Daybell. But they're not going to trace it back to Chad Daybell. You know why, Amanda? Why? Because he spells it D-A-B-A-L. He says like Deball. No, that's not Chad Daybell. That's Chad Deball. That's the best he could do. He could. <laughs> He's like, I didn't think that they'd ask me my name. Let me change it. Also, just like <laughs> hang up. Right? Like when they start asking you information that you don't want to give, hang up and be like, I'm sorry, we got disconnected. Anywho. Yeah. Genius. Genius man. Yeah. Yeah. And also he's saying it's for a relative. He says like he's calling for someone in his family. Obviously he needs like some cover, but him calling Charles his family is a little bit nauseating. And he was more creative with his relative's names, which was John Deval. East Idaho News has a copy of the recording. And at one point he talks about having a service later and kind of chuckles and giggles. And I'm like, do you understand that you're on the phone with a funeral home? Right. You fucking idiot. Well, that and it's just he has no business calling, right? Like that was just very stupid on his part to even call and associate himself with anything to do with Charles. Yeah. So also one of the things that we saw was that the full interview with Tylee after Charles's death was released, it is over two hours, but most of it is not her being interviewed. It's just a video of her in a room by herself, and she seems really bored and indifferent. Yeah. And just kind of like a bored teenager in a room, not like a bored teenager in a room who just lost someone. Like she doesn't have a lot of emotion, which would make sense because they didn't really have a relationship. It's an interesting kind of like indifference to see in a younger person. Right. And they released a few interviews from this time as well. And I didn't even think this would come out because she's a minor. So I was kind of surprised. Yeah. Tylee, when she's sitting there, she's like playing with her feet. Yeah, she's stretching. She like popped like something. And I was like, can you even pop that normally? Like she was cracking everything. But so there were some interesting parts of the interview that really stood out to us. So for one part was that originally we had heard that Laurie was already outside when the gun went off. Her Tylee gun went off, then door immediately opens and Laurie comes out. Interesting. She also talks about the baseball bat. And she mentions that the reason that she has the baseball bat is because when she lived with her uncle by herself, she wanted something to get for protection and she wasn't old enough to get mace or pepper spray. And that's a little bizarre. First off, I didn't know that she had lived with any of her uncles by herself at any point. And then also, like, why did she need to protect herself in this time? Well, yeah, the way that she phrases it is like, matter of fact, like when I lived with my uncle by myself, I just kept it to feel safe. And you're like a thousand questions for you. Yeah. Was it your uncle that made you feel unsafe? Was it a neighborhood you lived in? Where was your mother? What were you doing? Why were you there? You know, like, yeah, what was happening? I didn't know that. Yeah. And I assume she means Uncle Alex. Yeah, that's what I thought. But she doesn't say it specifically is him. She just says my uncle. Yeah. But I, I agree that it probably is him. Yeah. And she also really paints an awful picture of Charles as a complete asshole. She talks about how during the interaction, she was worried he may hit her because sometimes when he got mad, he would be so just verbally aggressive that she felt like he was going to be physically aggressive. She doesn't say it like that, but like that's the, the gist. 
Yeah, that's like the gist of what she's saying. And again, like she doesn't seem like a person who just lost someone who is important in their life, which, you know, again, fine. It's just interesting to see because she seems as though like she lost a book. Yeah. It doesn't seem like she has any feelings at all about not having him in her life anymore. Right. So another thing that came out was some information on the bat. So remember, the day that Charles died, he supposedly took a bat and he hit Alex with it, right? Again, I don't think that he actually hit Alex. I think that there was a bat, but I don't believe that he hit Alex with it because Alex probably would have sustained a bigger injury, right? Yeah. So Chandler Police Department tested the bat for fingerprints on September 26, 2019. According to the Chandler Police Department's forensic examination report that's dated October 11th, 2019, there were two latent print images and the results for the comparison request for Charles, Lori, and Alex said two latent marks from latent print images number one and two were found to be of no value for identification and were not compared. So I'm not a forensics person, but it's sounds like they didn't really match anyone's right or they weren't good enough prints to match it to someone listed a later report from october 25th of 2019 compared them just to charles again and they came back inconclusive to charles so here's my question if he did indeed take a bat and hit alex with it right he would have had to one take the bat from tylee which to take a bat from someone you're probably going to put your like full hand on the bat to remove it right Mm -hmm. and have prints Then if he was going to hit Alex with it, he would have had to shuffle it around and change the way that he was holding it. So wouldn't there be more prints of his on this bat if that indeed happened? I would think so, especially because we know that he played baseball. So he probably held the bat correctly. Right. So a full fingerprint. Like I might hold a bat kind of weird. I don't know. Right. Like, but if you know how to hold a bat, I would imagine. Yeah. And if you meant to injure someone, you're probably going to have a good grip on it. Yeah. I don't know. So it just doesn't seem like they really could find Charles's prints. And again, this is just from how I understand the report. And it's not even the full report, but it's just talking about these latent prints. So if it is just these two latent prints, maybe there were more that did indeed match Charles's. But the way that this came out, it sounds like they didn't. So it just seems very strange to me. So obviously, like how I'm interpreting it is pure speculation. I'm just going off of like how I would personally grab a bat, how I would hold it if I wanted to hurt someone. And so in my head, there should be some clear prints. We aren't bat scientists, though, so I I just feel like something should have been more conclusive. Yeah, I mean, if he was holding it and being as threatening as Alex said he was and Laurie said he was and Tylee said he was, here's the thing. I could see as a teenager seeing someone holding a bat who's screaming being very intimidating, right? So, like, I'm not saying that Tylee didn't see what she said she saw, right? I think that, like, chances are she was talking to her mom. Her mom was like, yeah, he was in there freaking out. He was holding the bat, X, Y, Z. And so I really do feel like you would have seen Prince. Yeah. So another thing that came out, so many weird things, is Chad's blessing to Alex. And Chad sent this blessing to Alex via email on November 24th, 2019. And this was after Chad and Lori got married, which of course was after Tammy passed away. And just another interesting note, this blessing to Alex sent end of November 2019, right? Alex died in December of 2019. Yep. So sounds like someone knew it was coming, right? It is almost like someone knew it was coming. 
So a couple interesting phrases from his blessing. I'm not going to read the whole thing. It's pretty long. But you were selected by the Savior himself to be part of the fourth creation. Great warriors were needed in that creation. Another one. Powerful goddesses needed to be protected. And you were selected to help protect your sister. And then down the line. You helped her in numerous probations as a defender. You will know where to be before the natural disasters happen so that you can be on location to protect key church leaders and preserve those who should survive. Should survive? Should survive. Yep. After many years of service, as the second coming approaches, you will know when it's time to move to the other side of the veil. He will know when it's time to move to the other side of the veil. Could it perhaps be when someone's exhumed? Hmm. Just a thought. Then we'll continue. Again, these are Chad's words. One day your spirit will leave this body that has served you well and you will be greeted by the Savior himself. Then a couple sentences later, after a day or two, you will be raised up and resurrected. So when the Savior does return, you will be right at the front of that amazing team of angels who will sweep the earth, much like described in the book, The Renewed Earth. This is a very specific. So um, anyone seen Alex lately? Because after a day or two, he's going to be raised up and resurrected. You know, I haven't. But you know, I'm on the East Coast. So right, right. Very weird, though, right? Like there's a lot of weird things in there. And so he died December 12th, right? This was November 24th. He's talking about how he'll know when it's time to cross They say he died of natural causes. It's in his autopsy. It's in all these reports, right? I still don't buy it. I don't buy it at all. I truly and very thoroughly do not buy it because there's just too much death surrounding Laurie for me to believe that it was natural causes and too convenient of timing. Too convenient of timing for sure. Yeah. So let's move into an interview with Zulima and the Chandler Police Department. And we're going to talk about Tammy's death the scariest massage one might ever receive. But it's a bizarre interview. And I feel like we learned a lot in that interview. So the interview happened in April of 2021. But the information about it wasn't released until recently with the Chandler Police Department documents. So Alex was a massage therapist. So the day after he and Zulema were married, he offered to give her a massage, which, okay, that is so sweet, new husband. But he said they had to get some supplies. Okay, maybe they didn't have the massage oils. Maybe he was going to do something interesting and he had to get something exciting. What he had to get was a large plastic drop cloth. Let me just tell you. No, thank you, sir. You will not be buying that. That will not be happening. Now, look, I'm sure there are an array of activities that one could enjoy in the bedroom that might necessitate that. But a massage is not one of them, right? No, and they say to protect the bed. Yeah. But it's not like a massage therapist isn't going to like, I don't know, put a whole bottle of oil on you. Yeah. And we'll we'll get to that, too. So they get back from picking up their drop cloth. They put it over the bed and she lays down on it. Have you ever gotten a massage, Amanda, like a professional massage? Yes. Did you fall asleep? No. I have fallen asleep every time I've gotten a professional massage. I was very stressed. I am not a good massage person. No. You know, I know this because that's what I was going to get you for Christmas last year. And Mike was like, do not do that. It stresses me out too much. She's like, she will not like that. And I was like, okay. I'm like, stranger, rub me down. Like, get my butt. Like, a butt massage is what is up. I don't want to hear it. Anywho. So I fall asleep in massages. So to me, this that's not strange to fall asleep. But she says she fell asleep abnormally quickly. And she says, I was really relaxed. Like when you're trying to wake up and can't. And then says, I was thinking, 
why am I so relaxed and can't wake up? I was in and out and could hear him talking and I was like, who was he talking to? So she went on to say that she thought that he was talking to someone in the bathroom. And when she asked him about it, he said he was talking to himself. And she said that for the rest of that night, he was unusually quiet because he was normally very chatty and jovial. And she too mentions that he did not use enough massage oil to get it all over the bed. Also, if you're a professional massage therapist, you're used to using these materials a little amount. Yeah, like you're not like squeezing it on. Did I tell you like I got this body oil and I was like, this is nice. And I was like rubbing it on. But then I put too much on. So I was just like a walking oil slick. And so like, did you get a drop cloth? I didn't. I put on like a robe, not the robe I'm wearing now, a different robe. So I have multiple robes. And I was just like, I can't exist anywhere because I'll stain it. So I just like stood there. Wandered around your house like a ghost. Yeah, I just haunted my house as an oily woman. But anyway, Alex didn't make her an oily woman. So they didn't really have a reason to need that drop cloth. And she specifically mentions, right? So she said like she was abnormally tired in a way that didn't make sense to her. And she says that she didn't eat or drink anything out of the norm that day. And when talking about the plastic, she says, so maybe I'm a little too crazy from all the stuff that's happened. But in the back of my mind, I keep thinking he was on the phone with Chad and Lori and that was supposed to be my last day and he was supposed to. I mean, I agree. It's not out of the question, honestly. And I think that's what what is going on, truly. Like, I think that's what the intention was, is like, let's just get rid of her now. Maybe she knew something she wasn't supposed to. Maybe she was suspecting things. Yeah. And then maybe, maybe, I don't know. Maybe Alex made a good call here and he's like, I'm not going to do it. Like, maybe he got halfway done, called them panicked and said, never mind. Yeah. Well, and also, this is the only time he ever gave her a massage. Right. Right. Very weird. And especially if your husband's a massage therapist, I don't think that would be like the one and only time. Right. Yeah. I mean, I need to tell you when she was like, he'd never given me a massage before. I would be like, I'm sorry, what? You're by trade a massage therapist? That's like saying, like, you married a chef, but they've never cooked for you. Right. Well, I mean, remember, though, too, he was also a comedian. He was also, what, a truck driver or something, too? That's true. Supposedly, he had a bunch of different professions, right? So who knows? But it's it's very weird. And like when I was watching the interview, too, when she was like, it could have been my last day. And I'm like, oh, my goodness, it probably was supposed to be. And something changed. Something went off where he didn't do it. But I mean, if she was like drugged is what I'm guessing. That's what it sounds like. It really sounds that way to me. Yeah. Maybe he just couldn't do it. Maybe he finally had like a moral compass that stopped him. I don't know. Maybe that was the line. Maybe he actually liked her. Yeah. Well, and like I hinted at it, but like we've talked about before how Alex and Laurie's relationship didn't seem appropriate. Like he bought her coats and shit, which is fucking weird. But also like the pattern of Laurie wanting to be the most important person to each person. I could see why she didn't want Zulema in the picture. That's true. Yeah, maybe she was jealous. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So we're going to talk a little bit about Tammy again. So months before Tammy's trip to Utah, Chad told Zulema that Tammy was going to die in a car accident during that trip. And it kind of sounds like when he was saying Charles was going to die on his trip as well, right? Yes. After a call with Chad and Lori after Tammy's death, Zulema asked Alex if he was involved in Tammy's death. He said no in a very matter of fact kind of way. So she believed him like, no, I wouldn't do that. She's like, okay, like maybe I'm just thinking too much into it. So as a reminder, though, this was the day Tammy was exhumed. So it was the day before Alex died. 
Uh-oh. Yeah. She got up to walk away and then he started talking again. In Perzulemma, he said, I think I'm being their fall guy. And I asked him, fall guy for what? What are they trying to pin on you? What did they do? He didn't want to say anything. And she was trying to get this information out. A few minutes later, though, Alex looks at her and says, either I am a man of God or I'm not. Was he doing God's work? Was he not? Was he being framed? Like, what what was happening here? I think, to me, how I read that was that, like, he'd done awful things. And that, like, he's either being manipulated or he's doing God's will. But maybe he wasn't so sure anymore. Right. In my heart, I believe the plan was for him to die. Right? Like, they made that plan. They did that blessing. He was supposed to die there. If he was finally coming to terms like, oh, gosh, maybe I messed up. I feel like he wouldn't have killed himself. I feel like he would have turned himself in. And we don't know. They say it's natural causes. I don't buy it. But I feel like he would have said something, right? Or maybe gone on a little bit further. But also, he's very protective of Lori. So maybe he didn't want her to go down. I don't know. I mean, also, keep in mind, like, it wasn't as though this relationship that they had just bloomed overnight, right? Like him and Laurie. This was, I'm assuming, decades in the making of manipulation, little by little by little by little by little by little to get him to do her bidding, right? Right. That's my theory, if you will. But like, at the end of the day, I do think the plan was always for him to die. Yeah. And I think that the reason that they wanted him to kill Zulema was because everything would have been easier to pin on him if he had killed her. Right. And she wouldn't know all this information that she's coming out with now. Yeah, but her death would have been like, everybody always says it's the husband, right? I think that everyone could have been pinned on him if he would have killed her specifically. Probably. They would have been like, oh, no. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. He's a killer. He killed his wife. Who else could he have killed? Exactly. So she also says that she believes that her relationship with Alex was real and she really was very much in love with him. So it's kind of sad that she was like manipulated into this too. I think I don't think it was 100% real on both sides. She also said, I now see that they had a real nefarious plan to do something to me or Alex or that we were the final piece to move to Rexburg. And by the grace of God, I didn't move there. I dodged a bullet by not moving to Rexburg. For sure she did. Yep. Now more than ever, I think. Was Alex being true? Was he lying? Was he being told what to do? Did he really have a relationship with me? Or was he just following what Chad and Lori were telling him? I ask myself whether these people are insane or if they're just led by evil. My heart does kind of feel for her. Yeah. But also like some of the weird text messages between her and Lori, I feel like she's just trying to be removed from the situation now. As far as like when they talk about something I'll actually talk about in a minute. But when she was texting Lori about stuff and like when people are supposed to die and zombies and things like that, was she just thinking that they were playing some weird game? I feel like she believed all of it. I think that she bought into it until children began to die. Maybe. Yeah. Right. Because couldn't you see like you're surrounded by these beliefs in such a pervasive way that like it's kind of reinforced over and over and over again. And then I would imagine that JJ entirely going missing would have been just enough to cut through for some people to be like, wait a second. That's true. At least I would hope. But, you know, clearly that's not the case all the time. Yeah. So there's another document that was released that kind of talks about Lori and Zilema again. And this one's very weird. And it has some information that we didn't quite know. And it says that Lori told her, which is Zilema, that they needed to use all of the elements, water, fire, lightning, etc., to get rid of Hiplos. Remember, Hiplos is Charles. 
Lori would often tell Zulema that she had been told to try new things to try to get rid of Hiplos next. Okay, so like, again, they're talking about killing someone, right? Yeah. Zulema recalled one time Lori was at her house and they were talking about getting rid of Hiplos. Lori stated that it was hard and complicated. Lori was laughing and told Zulema that maybe what she needed to do was put a bunch of medication in his water. I get it when you're like, oh, I I could kill them. You know, like that's one thing. But then saying, here's how I'm going to kill them or maybe this is what I should do to them is a little much. Right? Like, I'd be weirded out. It's one thing to be like, we need to get rid of them. I'm not condoning it. It's more like, I agree with you. That once they started saying, like, here are concrete ways in which we can do this, she should begin being terrified. Right. So Zulema also talks about her relationship with Alex and does say that they were just becoming friends during the time of Charles's death. She also added that they didn't start talking on the phone until after Charles died, as she did not have his phone number until sometime in July. And then when she was asked, well, how did you find out about Charles's death? She said that on July 12th, 2019, Alex and Lori called asking if she could come over to Lori's house. So Zalem was like, OK, she agreed. She met with them. Yeah. When she arrived, Alex opened the door for her and gave her a hug. He invited her in and told her that Lori was in the backyard. They went into the backyard and Lori was laying on one of the pool chairs. She stated that Lori was very quiet. At this time, that's when Lori told her that Alex shot Charles yesterday. So day after his death, she's lounging by the pool. She's not even good at all of this. And there were some rumors that she had like a pool party the night of his death. Yeah. I don't know if it was so much a pool party. Maybe she just went out to the pool. I haven't seen any evidence that there was indeed a party there. Yeah. So then here's just a little excerpt from her interview here, too. And it says, Lori told Zulema that Charles came to pick up JJ. She took his phone and began to go through his messages. This made Charles upset and an argument ensued. Like, I'd be pissed, too, I guess. Right. Alex came out and tried to intervene. Tylee also came out with a bat to help her mom. Charles then took the bat from Tylee, and then Alex tried to restrain Charles. During this time, Charles hit Alex in the head with a bat. Alex then went and got his gun and told Charles to stop. Charles did not, and Alex shot him. Here's the big part. During this time, Alex told Zulema that it was impossible for Charles to have this much strength. He told her that he held Charles from behind, and Charles flipped him around like a pancake. Alex told Zulema that he shouldn't have been able to do this if he were only Charles. Lori then told Zulema that there were 100,000 dark entities that came to assist Charles and he had supernatural strength. Zulema asked Alex how he was doing after shooting Charles. Alex told Zulema that he was okay because it was a zombie that he had killed. Okay, so let's take that back a minute. When was he trying to restrain Charles and also the supernatural strength? So that tells me there was more of a altercation than what it said in other interviews. Certainly not a baseball bat. Right, right. Also, if he had 100,000 dark entities that came to assist him, in my head, maybe I've watched too many horror movies, but if there's that many entities helping him, do you think just like a gun bullet would kill him? No, I do not. What in the world? I, I don't get it. Just overall. I guess looking in, it's so easy to be like, you sound bananas, my guy. But like persistent brainwashing 
that's what happens. Yeah. It's just now that all of these documents and there's more, there's so many things that have been released these last couple months and interviews. And like Lindsay said, the one with Tylee is two hours long. There's a lot of them. It's an exhausting amount of information. Yeah. Even through watching some of the other ones too, it doesn't really seem that their story included a lot of this, right? No. Mm -mm. So let's move on to my favorite part, and that's filings. Since we haven't done a Valo update since the beginning of September, there were quite a few filings, over 40. I've gone through all of them, (laughs) but I'm not going to regale you with every single filing, but I'm going to do broad strokes, and then I am going to talk about the latest filing from Mark Means because it is chock full of very interesting information. So let's talk about generally the filings first. Originally, the cases were supposed to be fully joined as both Lori and Chad were charged under the same indictment. The court filing system automatically generated two case numbers just because that's how the system works. But this was not supposed to indicate that there were two separate cases with a singular trial. The prosecution raised this concern months ago and was told it wouldn't be an issue and that the burden to correct this would not be on the prosecution. And I'll explain why we care about this like procedural snafu in a moment. So then the court issued an order saying that filings should be separated based on court cases. So the prosecution responded that the court acted on its own and partially separated the cases. So basically, this is the order that we talked about a few months ago, where Pryor is going to file things for Chad and Means and Archibald will file motions on behalf of Laurie and never the two shall meet, right? That does seem a little strange. Yeah, it felt strange. And so separating the cases at this point is kind of hard. It's still possible that they could have the same trial, but it's a lot harder to get through all of the pretrial motions on both sides and then have notice for the other. So, for example, and we're going to get into this in just a moment, there was filings to sequester the jury by the prosecution. And it very much seems like Pryor is going to battle that. But Mark Means isn't weighed in on that because it's happening under Chad's filings. So it makes it so there's things happening in one without the other. And it makes sense because Laurie's not competent at this point. It just feels very strange. Yeah. One of the other things that have come through the filings is that the venue has been changed to Ada County with Judge Boyce continuing to preside over the case when it moves. We know that defense wanted the case moved out of Fremont County, but the prosecution was like, what if rather than moving the entire case, we import a jury from a different county? However, in Pryor's response to this, he talks about the undue stress that would be placed on the jury if they had to travel and be sequestered for the entire duration of the trial. It's going to be a long one. I can't even imagine. Yeah. And he even goes into the fact that so like the prosecution presents their case first and he says for long trials, juries begin to resent the defense because they want them to be done because they want to go home. And so they're just like from the get biased, which I was like, that is an interesting argument to make. It's a true one, though. Like, you'd be like, come on, shut up. I don't care anymore. Yes, they're guilty. Like, leave me alone. Yes. But in the same respect, it's also they're presenting their case second. So like they hear it first and then they're hearing it again. That was one of the reasons why I was like, I don't think that Pryor is going. I think that he's going to battle the jury being sequestered. And I think it's 100 percent necessary in this case for the jury to be sequestered. It's been said so many times that the jury pool is going to be biased. They've even talked to local media to say, like, how many people in the state are reading your website, specifically East Idaho News? about this case. And it's a lot of people. And it's not just in Fremont. And it's not just in Idaho. It's all over the country. 
So I think that's very surprising that Pryor would want them to not be sequestered. Just also, as a note, one of the things that I wanted to know was whether sequestered jurors could have cell phones. And just as a note, what does being sequestered means? It means that you basically, you stay at a hotel, you cannot watch TV, you cannot read newspapers, you don't get any outside influence about the case. And for a case like this, where all it is is outside influence, and one of the trends it seems like in the filings is to start sealing them so they're not available to the public to be more biased by, just interesting that they're now starting to do that. And I'm like, it's a little late, but okay. Right. It's all out there. And also, I'm sorry, like, just the timeline of events is strange, right? Like, if they don't want to say guilty, but like, very strange and very coincidental. Yeah. So if you're following the case, you probably already know this, but Laurie's commitment has been extended. Now we're going to get to Mark Means latest filing, which dare I say it was an interesting read. Sometimes court filings can be uh, very, very dry, but Mark Means always aims to entertain, it feels like. Wait, you didn't call him the name that you call him when you text me. Marky Mark. Yes, thank you. When I text Amanda, I'm like, get some Marky Mark did. I don't know why, but it is. So on the state of Idaho Judicial Branch's website, they named this filing declared motions. It's several motions. So it's a motion for the state to disclose Brady violation disclosures, motions for criminal depositions, motions for out-of-state subpoenas, and a motion to disqualify Idaho Department of Health and Welfare. None of those sound particularly sexy, but let's get into what Marky Mark is frustrated by. And I am fascinated by this. I was sending Amanda screenshots as I was reading it, like, what? But so, okay, he filed this on the 27th of October. On October 15th, Means met with Laurie at her mental health facility where she's been committed. And per his filing, he says, it was brought to my attention of unethical and possible illegal activity, discussions, disclosures, and the manipulation of the incompetent defendant. So Means refers to Laurie's clinician as NC. So he said that per Laurie, Laurie and NC watched Chad's October 5th hearing that was about to transfer the trial. And that after NC recommended that Laurie reach out to the Latter-day Saints legal counsel to discuss her case and to obtain legal counsel. And then this would be in lieu of the state appointed counsel. And in a footnote, Means says, it is abundantly clear that improper disclosures and communications between defendant and NC have been made that are in violation of defendant's due process rights and irrelevant to her treatment while in the control and the custody of the IDHW. And so after watching this hearing, right, and saying to Laurie that she should contact the LDS counsel, NC then provides a, a phone number and tells Laurie it's part of her homework. At this point, Laurie is working under the assumption that this call is mandatory because throughout her treatment, if she didn't do something that was part of her homework when they had their next session, then they would do it then. So she did not think that this was something that she could refuse. So she did call. And Mean says, but for NC's continued prodding, she would not have called or made the disclosures she had. So, dear listener, I bet you're wondering what disclosures she made. So Lori calls and she speaks to Daniel S. McConkie, and he's one of the LDS's church's legal counsel. McConkie is on the list of names that we now love. I was going to say, like, are you obsessed with his last name like I am? It's fun to see. <laughs> it's fun to say. So during their conversation, McConkie talks about his extensive experience as a prosecutor, but didn't make any assurances about attorney-client privilege, nor did he mention the fact that he wasn't licensed in Idaho or discuss any potential conflicts of interest. And that's important to note because, like, if he had said those things, 
that would be very problematic regarding the conversation they had. Means said, defendant believed it to be protected confidential by the rules of the spiritual world. Scientist lawyer Lindsay, what are the rules of the spiritual world? What confidential rules are there? Well, first off, the phrasing of this sentence just doesn't make sense. I even just checked it to make sure that I had it right. And it is. It's line 13 of page four of the filing. But, um, you know, I don't think that is a legal principle that I'm aware of. Okay. There is a certain kind of privilege when it comes to clergy, but McConkie isn't clergy. He's counsel for a church. And that's a very different role. Right. And so to me, look, you can't say, but they believed too bad. But also, it's no different than her just like calling some random person. Yeah. Right? Like, realistically. Amanda and I were talking and she was like, well, he's an attorney. And I was like, yeah, but he's not her attorney. And it has the same legal effect. Like, if she called one of us and was like, let me tell you about some things. Yeah. And we'd be like, oh, thank you. Go ahead and tell me. Actually, you know what? I would be like, you do not. Do not tell me. Don't involve me in this. Don't bring me into your mess. And like, don't make me this way on me. So after Lori made various disclosures, McConkie said he would get back to her with an attorney who could practice in Idaho. Do you think he just like hung up the phone and like cackled for four minutes before he made any calls? No, I think he hung up the phone and sat there in utter silence and just blinked for a solid minute. Like, what the hell? So Laurie described McConkie as eager to discuss the case and that he had mentioned that he was familiar with every detail of her case, like we all are. I'm sure he was. He listens. Hello, McConkie. Yeah. So per means McConkie called Rob Wood and told him everything that she had said. I just need to say McConkie. So McConkie's like, what up, Wood? I know everything about this case. Let me give you some more details. Let me give you the deeds. So per means McConkie calls Rob Wood and is like, let me tell you some hot goss and tells him everything she said. I do not know why Mark Means thinks that he can prove that, right? That doesn't it doesn't make any sense. He's like, Laurie told me that her therapist or psychiatrist told her to call this attorney. She called this attorney. This attorney then listens to her tell all these things. And then he told Rob Wood everything. I don't know how he would know that unless he's in the room where it happened. But so Rob Wood does confirm that McConkie called him, but he only said that McConkie only disclosed that Laurie wanted a new attorney that wasn't appointed by the state. And so Wood called her state appointed attorney, not Means, which I think is part of what his ruffled Means' feathers is that he wasn't the one who was contacted. It was Archibald. Well, and to replace him. He's like, that's my name on the big case. I want the big case. Well, exactly. And like, that's the thing, too, that's interesting is that we know that as soon as Laurie is is deemed competent, one of the first things she's going to have to do is determine who she wants as counsel. But so we're going to get into some legal goo, if you will. Let's talk about privilege first. The conversation between Laurie and McConkie wasn't a privileged conversation because it wasn't between a client and their attorney. It was just a client and an attorney. Like, say... I don't know. Someone who I don't know walks up to me on the street, knows I'm a barred attorney and goes, I just shot my husband. Boo, I don't practice. I'm not your attorney. I can't help you. And this is unprivileged. You call Wood and you're like, I got some sweet deets. Hot goss. Sweet deets, hot goss. Sweet deets and hot goss. I just want to hear Wood say that now. That's like his face. I know the deets. I have the hot goss. Hot goss. Yeah, exactly. And like, 
You hear that there is now this third party possibly has a confession from Laurie, right? And you go, ooh, he can talk about it, right? He can talk about what she said because it sounds like a thing that could perhaps happen. And now we have a person who's completely removed from this case who potentially has crucial information. Unless Wood and Blake are able to squeeze this into a hearsay exception, this conversation would likely not be admissible under hearsay rules. That's good. We're going to get into our legal goo now. Hearsay is defined as an out-of-court statement that is offered to prove the truth of whatever it asserts. So here they're saying, for example, if they were trying to get McConkie to testify and say that, like, he actually did know all these details, they could say, we know his testimony would be offered to prove the charges against her if they were trying to put it in there, which I have not seen anything saying they would. But let's get into an example that I feel like is a little easier. So let's say Amanda is facing theft charges relating to the theft of my amazing jar of grape jelly. Now, let's say we make it strawberry jelly. I think it's just better. No, it's grape jelly. No, it's grape jelly. You Purple hair, grape jelly. I'm sorry. I don't make the rules. I did make this rule. So, okay. Now, let's say Amanda, she's at her house. She called her bestie, Madison, and said, I've just had the best peanut butter and jelly sandwich of my life. And it's so good because I stole Lindsay's amazing grape jelly. And I don't even normally like grape jelly. But this one was so good that I'm a believer now. And she even says, I stole it from her. Maybe that is why it tastes like a delicious hug. And so I know, right? It's unnerving and unsettling. And yet here you are doing it. So generally, the prosecution wouldn't be able to use Amanda's conversation with Madison as evidence because it would be hearsay. So again, our hearsay elements, out of court statement, check, Amanda was at home. And it's being used to prove the truth of whatever it asserts. Here, we would be using this conversation to prove that Amanda stole my amazing jar of grape jelly. There are tons of exceptions, and they all vary per jurisdiction. They would allow hearsay evidence to be admissible. Some examples would be statements made for medical diagnoses or treatment, an excited utterance, or a present sense impression. Looking at the list of exceptions, I don't see any that immediately jump out to me as relevant to either Amanda's theft of my amazing jar of grape jelly or to Lori's case. But it's an interesting idea to think that there could be this conversation that's out there that's not really going to be, I I don't imagine, will be officially included in the case. So getting back to means filing, per Laurie, when she told NC that she had called the LDS counsel, she said good. Laurie then told her that she told her attorney, means, and NC said, no, you didn't, and looked concerned. Means asked the prosecution to provide communications and any notes about communications with the following parties. And this list is not limited to, but it should include Brady violation disclosures. And we'll get to what that is in a second. But he specifically wants communications and notes of conversations between the prosecution and the LDS Church, the prosecution and the Idaho Department of Health and Welfare facility. Also, communication between people working in the facility. He also specifically lists charts as one of the types of communications. So strange. Yeah. And we chatted about this before, but a Brady violation occurs when the prosecutor fails to disclose materially exculpatory evidence that the state has possession of. Exculpatory evidence is evidence that would excuse, justify, or absolve the alleged guilt or fault of the defendant. And this could include a statement. If there were Brady violations in this case, a conviction could be vacated. The prosecutor could face consequences. But like, from what I understand... When you see a conviction being vacated in relation to a Brady violation, the evidence isn't known before the trial. 
right? Because let's say, hypothetically, during our great, amazing jelly case, the conversation that Amanda has is not that she stole my jelly. Rather, it is that she is allergic to grapes and that she is so allergic that she can't even touch a jar of jelly. Say that's the statement that she told Madison and that Madison then told the prosecution about. If the prosecution didn't share that, oh my gosh, right? Like that completely absolves her of this because she could not have stolen that jelly. It would have made her sick. She couldn't have done it. Is that the conversation that they're thinking that she had with McConkie? Something where it proves that she would not be at fault or that she's not guilty? No. I mean, I can't imagine. It's really hard to imagine a world where she has anything to say that would make anyone think otherwise, right? Right. Frankly, I wonder if that was the case, if he would have went right to Wood, right? How you would approach someone's like, I murdered my children. I'm complicit in the murder of my children versus like, I think he's framing me, right? Right. And also like where you are on believing whether Laurie is actually competent or not. We know that she's a great manipulator. So her manipulating just another man wouldn't be surprising. But so basically, it seems as though Means is arguing that exculpatory evidence was provided. Interesting. So Means is also requesting depositions and or out-of-state subpoenas. He's looking for a deposition of Rob Wood, as well as NC and any other agents of the Idaho Health and Welfare Department facility. Robert McConkie would be one of her out-of-state subpoenas, as well as any other LDS person that was privy to the conversation either being in the room or being on the line or having had a conversation with McConkie, as well as LDS church agents. Now, interestingly, he's also asking for the court to disqualify NC to treat Lori and oversight by defense counsel for all future treatment and the like provided by the state. I don't think he's qualified to do that. So NC, it's not their fault that Lori decided to tell something she shouldn't have, right? Yeah, NC said, call them, right? Figure some stuff out, not tell them your life story. Yeah, exactly. We don't know what she said, but that's what I assume. So it's not their fault. That that doesn't disqualify them from being a great medical professional either. Yeah, yeah. Month, right? Yeah. So one last thing I wanted to talk about is something that was released late in October, and it was an interview with Alex's ex-wife. Hmm. We haven't heard of this character before, really. We haven't heard from her. But Alex's ex-wife talked to authorities. She basically called them and they recorded the conversation. And that's what came out. They only disclosed her first name as Debbie. The reason why she didn't come out right away was she didn't want to be in the news and she didn't want her kids involved, which fair. But she does say within the conversation that she did leave tips with some of the police departments and also with the FBI. And she didn't hear from anyone until she finally decided to leave a tip with Chandler Police Department and they finally made contact with her. I hate this so much. Yeah, this was weird to me. She's like, at one part of the conversation, I'm kind of bouncing around within it. But at one point, she does say, well, I'm not sure if anyone could find our marriage or divorce license because it's so long ago. And that they got married in Wyoming. And the divorce was pretty straightforward because they had like no kids or anything. So like my red flags kind of went up and I'm like, is this for real? But then also, why would they be publishing it if they didn't do some digging first, you know? I guess. So they asked like, why come forward now this long into the investigation? And she's like, well, at first, I couldn't believe what was happening. And that she did kind of early on start trying to reach out to the agencies that didn't really give her the time of day or call her back, it sounds like. 
She found out about this whole situation during the search for the kids, and it was on the news. She also says, like, just to be open, I did reach out to Summer via Instagram, and I said, sorry to hear about Alex. And her reply was, don't believe what you're seeing in the news. Ooh, okay. So she goes into it a little bit. She's like, our marriage ended within a year. We were married in 92, divorced in 93. She was only 22 at the time. Alex was 24. She was guessing. She's like, it's been a while, but I think those were our ages. Yeah. And she did not know his family before they got married. She said there was a lot of crazy dynamics within their family and that she had gone through some old journals about it, too. So it sounds like she wrote a lot of it down. So she said that Alex and his sister Lori were involved in inappropriate sexual touching. I'm just blinking at Amanda. Yeah. Example. He would pick her up and she would wrap her legs around his waist and he would sort of like bounce her up and down on himself in front of Debbie. And then she said sometimes they would even like moan and simulate sex acts and it made her very uncomfortable. It seems like Lori is very into dry humping and I'm not even trying to be cavalier with it, but like from reading Chad's story, it seems like that's where her like go to move is with her brother. No. Okay. So his mom and dad would also talk about their sex life in front of everyone. And she says they had no shame. And so it was just like this weird, uncomfortable family dynamic. She said, I knew the family was too weird that I had made a big mistake (laughs) and I got out. Good on you. Good on you. Right? I mean, essentially, she like saved herself. Who knows what could have happened if she stayed with him? Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. But like, oof. Yeah. And she said at the time that they weren't like her and Alex weren't really active in LDS during the time of their marriage. Hmm. Alex also was a very protective brother, but she's like, but he sexualized Lori quite a bit. He also would call her hot and he never acted like that with his other sisters. So remember, he had two other sisters, Summer and then the one that passed away. I hate this so much. He also lived in the same apartment complex at one point, And it seemed like Alex was always chasing after Lori. That sounds familiar. When they moved to Rexburg, same thing. He lived in the same complex. It was like the next cluster of buildings over. You could walk door to door within a minute. I actually walked door to door just to see how fast it was. Yeah. So he also touched her breasts. And he thought Debbie was weird for thinking that it was weird. What? And when the cop is interviewing her, like even a couple times you hear it in his voice and he was like, okay, and like tries to get more information out of her. But like you could tell he's just like, what in the world? Yeah. And she does mention, though, I don't think that they were sleeping together, though. That's because Laurie liked to dry hump. Yeah. So while married, he also got excommunicated from the Mormon church, she says. Surprise, surprise. And at some point he got rebaptized and then excommunicated again. And she thinks that he kept getting kicked out because he was a sex addict. And she said that he had mentioned that he couldn't control sex and would find it where he could find it. She thought, though, once they were married, maybe that would change, but believes that he was like this before and after marriage. Another strange thing is that they moved to Texas and she's like, I wanted to move back to Utah. But he didn't want to. Then all of a sudden, one day he comes home and he's like, yeah, we can move back. And they very quickly moved back. But it was so quick that they didn't even get to bring all of their belongings. She says she was just so excited to move back because that's what she wanted. She didn't really ask a ton of questions. She was just like, he finally wants to move back. Yeah. 
Then come to find out, she says he slept with a 15 year old girl while living in Texas and that her dad found out and was going to find him. So that's why they ultimately moved. Is this why Tylee needed a bat? I hate this. That is like a thought, but I don't know. Yeah. Because we don't know if it was for sure she was living with him. We think that that was the case. Yeah, no, I know. I know. That just hurts my heart. It does. It does. It sounds like the police officer was like, well, I'm going to look into that. He said something along those lines. So she had last spoke with Alex after he served time for the assault on Joseph Ryan. And she believes it was about two to three months after, but she wasn't quite sure. She said that he had told her that he was still mad about Joseph Ryan and that he possibly had sexually abused the kid. So he was very angry, which like if you think that about someone, of course, you're going to be angry. You're going to have a lot of feelings. Yeah. But he couldn't really provide her any proof. And when she'd like ask follow up questions about it, he didn't really have good answers for it. So after being asked questions about it, he would go into things like, well, we're really just we're trying to get custody. We're trying to get custody and keep saying things like that. So she's like, I don't know. You know, like, yeah, did that happen or was it because they were trying to gain custody of the kids? Yeah. In that same conversation, he also mentioned that he wanted to bait Joseph into a fight so that he could kill him and claim self-defense. Who does that sound like? Charles. Yeah. Absolutely sounds like Charles. Yep. So she's like, at the time, I didn't think he was serious, but I thought it was creepy and weird. So I never spoke to him again because it sounds like they kept up contact. Yeah. For a while. And then she's like, too much done. Yes, fair. She had thought at the time, like, well, maybe jail wasn't that kind to him. And maybe it like changed him a bit. And she just didn't want him in her life anymore. And that's the last time they spoke. But that's haunting, right? It's absolutely haunting. I mean, all of it. It's all a whole bunch of fucking nope. I would have just like gotten out of that person's life so quick. Yep. Well, that's what she did. And then, I mean, it's good on her for like calling and keeping up because like a lot of people I feel like would be discouraged after they called a couple police officers and never heard back. Oh my gosh. I'd be like, someone needs to know this. So I I agree. It's great that she had the tenacity to keep going when she was like, people aren't listening, but this needs to be heard. This needs to be a part of the conversation about who he is and what he has done. Because that's important context to have to be able to understand the role he played in this. And because he said it to Zulema, and we've said it before, that it seems like the easiest option for them is to pin this all on Alex. And I've said that before, honestly. I was like, he's going to go down. He's going to be the one that just gets blamed for all of it. And that's probably, like in my head, that's probably going to be their argument. Well, Alex did it. Alex did that. Exactly. And I think at the end of the day, like, it's a good argument to make. I don't think it absolves Laurie and Chad of their involvement. Mm -hmm. That's true. So obviously, we'll keep following this and uh, we'll add it to our True Crime Digest. If it's a lot of information like this, it'll have its own standalone episode. What do you think about the case? Do you have any thoughts or feelings on all of the information that's come out these last two months? If so, tag us, comment, email us. We love to hear it. Yeah. And with that, have a great weekend. Thanks for creeping with us. Thanks for listening. For more information on our sources, please visit our website, truecreeps.com. If you'd like to follow us on social media, you can follow us on Instagram at truecreepspod, on Facebook at facebook.com slash truecreepspod, and on Twitter at truecreeps. We'd love for you to keep creeping with us. So if you like this episode, please subscribe, rate, review, and share the show with your fellow creeps.